Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the latest edition of the of the Hubble Champions podcast with your host Shukri Wrights. We're back at it again with another another double screen. This time, this time, almost six months later after the fact, I figured that it's time to bring back a good friend of the of the program, a good friend of mine back in Boston, and this time. This this is someone who has really um, made, made a lot of strides himself in the last uh, last several months, especially during the fall. Um, John Lyons of WEEI and as well as the New England Football Journal, I and mean, he, where he is a busy man, and, I, and I'm sure that he has been a very busy man the last uh, couple of weeks, especially with the week that has been um, for for the New England Patriots and so forth. John, it's great to have you back on. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Shukri. You know, always a pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to be back. And uh, you said yeah. it yourself. There's been a lot going on in New England, whether it's the Patriots news, the Celtics still being undefeated at home as of this recording. They do play Denver tonight yeah. at home. Yes. Bruins still playing pretty well overall. They've bounced back from that kind of little tough stretch they had around Christmas. And, of course, the Red Sox uh, making us all want to tear the limited hair we have out. <laughs> Uh, with their <laughs> lack of aggressiveness and free agency. So, Shukri, there's a lot going on. You you, you said it, and I'm really glad yeah. for the opportunity to be back here on with you. Absolutely, and it's definitely good to reconnect with um uh, with you being back home and and so forth. But before I even get started in all of it, today is today has been a pretty somber day, um not because of Boston sports reasons. In case if you haven't heard, um by now somehow some way. Sports Illustrated is no more. Yes, you heard correct. Sports Illustrated is no more after the announcement earlier today in which that all of its staff is expected to be laid off in a news that, I mean, except for maybe the, the, the head the head honchos there, not, not really anybody really saw it coming. And it's an end of an era, and it really is a reminder um, that – that just how how fickle this industry can be, whether if it's writing or even um, like digital and so forth. And, and it really is a shame because Sports Illustrated has been around longer than than you and I have been alive um, combined. This goes back like yesteryears and so forth. So, John, I want to get your initial thoughts on the big news that Sports Illustrated is going to be shuttering its doors. Well, I think you use the right word, Shukri, and that's somber, right? This is a publication that's been around, I believe it's 70 yeah. years now, the mm -hmm. iconic standard in sports journalism. And really, if you look at some of the stories they did, it went beyond just sports journalism into the world of general journalism overall. And they did a tremendous job, really, for the vast majority of their reign as this pinnacle of sports media. And I feel like over the last five years or so, They've been uh, sadly trending downhill. You know, they've been laying people off. They got sold, I think, to the arena group. It was about five, yes. six years ago. They've been mm -hmm. laying people off steadily. I feel like the quality of their content has gone down a little bit. Then there was the story a few months back of their having AI programs write some of their articles, which is yeah. obviously a bad look. But still, when you go from it's operating, you know, yesterday to today, everyone's getting laid off. That is a shocking 
development. Even though in, in the grand scheme of things from a strategic level, I wasn't shocked that Sports Illustrated maybe is a small, you know, a smaller company now. I'm a little shocked mm -hmm. that it's totally going to be gone, though. I, I didn't necessarily expect that. And just for me, like I remember when I was a kid, I, you know, real little kid, I started out getting Sports Illustrated for kids. And I thought it was the coolest oh, thing yeah. ever. That was SI for kids. And then I mm -hmm. uh, graduated, if you will, to getting yeah. regular Sports Illustrated. And I still, to this day, probably have seven or eight issues of Sports Illustrated that I saved for a variety of reasons, whether it was a particular news story that I liked or a particular cover that I found really interesting. I, I probably have seven or eight, art, uh, excuse me, full magazines saved. And another yeah. thing I think they did a great job with that I'll miss is those commemorative editions whenever a team yes. would win a championship or mm -hmm. something. I have several of those. Lucky me. I mean, you see the picture behind me here, right? Oh, yeah. I have several of those. <laughs> and I thought that was something that was, you know, a really nice thing because they would go into detail with all these stories about these championship teams. Great. That's another thing about Sports yes. Illustrated. Their photography, mm -hmm. phenomenal, right? Some of the pictures Top they would much. get, not just mm -hmm. the covers, but some of the in-magazine pictures, the commemorative edition pictures they would get. So, to me, I, you know, I looked at it as the pinnacle, really, of sports journalism, and it's sad to see that it's ending now. And, and I'll always have fond memories of it, and I think it's an unfortunate thing, not just for sports, but for people that are readers at large, because there's always good stories in there. I think it's an unfortunate thing for journalism as well, because they did such great work, Shukri, not just here, but all over the world every yeah. week of the year. Every year, mm -hmm. year in and year out. So that word somber you used, I, I think that hit the nail on the head there. I think that was the only appropriate word that I could use because it, you, we talked about like over 70 years that the publication has been in business. And and it, it's really a, a travesty because you talked about the people who would read the read the articles, the, they would read the the content online, especially now that we're in this in the digital age and so forth. And and I think that there is a massive loyal following, despite the fact that the content you know has taken a hit in terms of quality over the, over the last couple of years. But but there is always that, that loyal following. For me, I have been a fan of, of Sports Illustrated since my early teen years. Like I can remember. Um, like going to like the doctor's office and seeing copies of Sports Illustrated. Since I wouldn't get it to my house, but I would see it. I would see it on the table. I would just want to grab it. And I would just open it. It's for me. It's summer of two thousand four. Yeah, and I can remember um seeing the the front cover, seeing the the sweet swing of Manny Ramirez, Red Sox slugger, and obviously, I mean, as we know now, twenty years later, that that would end up being um one of the um, one of the um, big photos from that memorable year, obviously for for, for Red Sox Nation, yeah. and and so forth, and just 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 use it as an example. And it's it's truly a shame that this day has come. And I saw something on Twitter earlier that reminded me of this very truth that if you are a young journalist, always make sure that you have multiple streams of income because of its volatile nature that you just don't know like what is going to happen and in fact i'll even take it a step further john i want to get your thoughts on this we've seen i would say in the last eight months alone two of the biggest sports journalism 
outlets writing wise either merge with companies or completely shut its doors and i'm referring to the athletic when they when they merged with the new york times going back to last spring and now with well with sports illustrating shutting its doors laying off all of its employees john like what do you make of what's happening in terms of these legendary sports sports writing um media outlets that are either merging with larger companies or shutting its doors yeah and another piece of this is when the new york times merged with the athletic it largely yeah. gutted the new york times own sports department because they had the athletics so there was still people that either lost their jobs or got reassigned and that's the new york times we're times. talking about like mm -hmm arguably the most iconic newspaper and wealthiest newspaper in the yeah. entire world. And look, there's a lot of causes of this. I think the internet is probably the biggest. And it's funny because on one hand, like the internet allows us to do this, right. And yes. do a lot of things. And it allows mm -hmm. a lot more writers into the space, but it also hurts the people that truly write for a living. I think writing has been hurt by the internet more than anything else because it's much easier to put ads on podcasts or TV yeah. or radio, whereas the ad revenue, if you're reading an article, it's just not going to be quite the same. And I, it's easy to say this in hindsight, Shukri, but I wonder if the mistake was 25 years ago when the internet started to become big, I think these newspapers and publications should have put a paywall up immediately. So then people That's were used to it. Point. You know, yeah. like... Because I think what happened was, is, you know, I would pay for my newspaper at home if I was someone, pay for my mm -hmm. newspaper at home. But then I realized, oh, I can read all these articles online for free. Well, why am I paying for my newspaper at home? Or I can go on AOL News and get most of the same news as my Boston yeah. Globe newspaper. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they had put that paywall up right away. Let's just call it 1998, 26 years ago or late yeah. 90s. Yeah. People would have been accustomed to. Oh, I can get a newspaper subscription and for an extra $10 a month, I also get it online. And if I want online only, it's 20 bucks a month, whatever the cost was, because I think the problem they ran into is there were years where people got it for free online. So then when they turned around yeah. and said, oh, yeah, guys, we're going to put a paywall in. People got pissed because they're like, well, we've been it's been free for a while. Why am I going to have a paywall now? And they ended up either turning away from those platforms and, and finding other platforms or just not buying into the online reading at all or not getting the physical newspaper at all. And mm. as the, cause I think what should have happened ideally is as physical newspaper sales declined, the digital sales should have increased. And mm. I think to an extent that might've happened, but they didn't increase enough. And, and again, again, this is hindsight. I don't blame people back then for not anticipating this. No one, I think, or a lot of people didn't think the internet would be nearly as big as it is now. I knew it'd be big, but not that it's in not everyone's level. everyday lives with, you know, smartphones and everything. So I think, look, if they had put up paywalls in 1998, people would have groaned about it. Maybe they would have lost some customers, but I think you would have gained a lot more in the long run because you could have just made people accustomed to it instead of trying to add it retro retroactively later. So I think that's a huge cause here. And I think another thing is, Shukri, and, and you can see this in any business, especially mm -hmm. since the pandemic, just ad revenue isn't there as much. It's still there, yeah. but I think it's working its way back. And, and that's that's an unfortunate thing. And your point about, you know, having multiple ways to make money, I, I think is really true. Unless you're someone that's in a really high profile position, right? You 
are on TV for ESPN or you're a full-time radio person or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. or you're a reporter for the New York Times, like we mentioned, unless you're at that level, you mm -hmm. probably want to have two or three things that you have your hand in just even for supplemental income. If you have one main thing and then, so that way, if God forbid something does happen, like we saw at SI, you have something else there that you can kind of yeah. keep going with, but it's really unfortunate because you see a lot of people, great journalists, good people lose their jobs. And then another piece of this, some of these hedge funds that are buying these radio stations and publications and TV, they don't care about journalism. They only care about the bottom line. So if you and I are both up for a job and one of us is better than the other, but one guy is cheaper, they're going to pick the cheaper one every time instead of the better one, no matter mm -hmm. what. And, and that's not just one isolated example. It happens all, all the, the time, time in this business. Yeah. Yes. And I that's agree. why I've seen, and I think it's important. Like when I see the New York times union standing up for itself, when I see other unions, I think that's really important because when you're a hedge fund person, you're thinking of, I need to make the biggest profit. That's their mentality. That's their job. So you need these other organizations to stand up and say, well, there are other issues here and we have a voice to be heard. So it, it, there's a lot of causes. There's a lot going on. I think the industry is in a, a little bit of a better place than if you asked me this 10 years ago, coming off the financial crisis of 08, 09. I do think yeah. it's in a little bit of a better place, but is it where it was in 2002, 2003? I don't think so. Can no. it get back there? I think it can get back there revenue-wise. It's just going to look different, right? This show yeah. didn't exist in 2000. Podcast, that wasn't even a word in 2002. Now yep. it is. So I think we can get back there revenue-wise. It's just going to look a lot different. And it's going to take a ton of work. I, I agree. And, and it's, it's not only it's going to take a ton of work, but it's also going to take it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to yeah. take a lot of time in order in order for like for you to be able to make back some of the gross loss that that you have from from those that were that that were subscribers that now have to um you know pay like digitally in order to see the content and so forth. And 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 I think that you you hit the nail on on the head on, on the point of you know like how important it is especially if you're someone that's that's already in the business if you have something already, or if, unless if you're like in a high profile job, or like with if you're with Fox Sports One or Fox Sports Radio or CBS Sports Radio, or um, or or like let's say like I'm gonna use EEI as an example, like you 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 work there as as an on -air, on air host, and as well as do work for Sports Map Radio, and and I work with you on Sports Map Radio. You have to be able to have your hand in multiple things because. As we both know, this business is it's 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 really rewarding, but it also can be fickle because the thing that I that I've seen from afar is that if something were to happen, how are you going to survive? Yeah. How are you going to thrive? And you have to have multiple you know, avenues of like how, uh, how, and where you're going to uh, uh, make your, make your bread from, whether if it's doing like digital work, like podcasting or, you know, working as a contributor somewhere um, and like, or, or doing podcasts where there's some, there's some sort of like there's revenue that is being generated and so forth. I think all of that is huge. All that is important. And I think today, and you, you can say that it's just, it's just a dark thinking in me, but today was an, was a painful reminder that as, 
as wonderful and as rewarding as this career field is, and as beautiful as it is, there's a dark side to it in which that you have to always be prepared for the unexpected. And there's always going to be that thought, and at least in my mind, like, hey, always have a plan B or a plan C as like a just in case because of what we saw today and what we've seen just within the last eight, nine months alone. I th- and I think I think that's that's a very wise way to look at it, especially for anyone that may be viewing or, or is going to be listening to this podcast that want to get into the industry. I would I would strongly suggest like, hey, use today's um, example was supposed to illustrate it as an example that always have a plan B and a plan C involved and installed yeah. and ready to go because you just never know. Yeah, and my other point on this, and I think you know this very well, Shukri, there's a very fine line between working your way up and getting taken advantage of. And I think that's something that is a huge problem in this. And it's funny too, because, well, enough, like funny in an ironic way in that, I mean, how many people that are not either wealthy or financially secure have the time to work their way up for little to no pay, sometimes for multiple years to get a good journalism job. Like that's Great the thing, point. like it, it, it kills diversity, right? I, not killed, but well, essentially kind it, it of affects it. Go, no, it affects it. You're right. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and I'm not saying like, and I'm talking diversity of not just like racial diversity. I'm talking like how many people that are poor can think, Oh, I want to be a journalist. Like you might have to put food on the table and you can't work your way mm-hmm. up for 50 bucks a story and or or something like that or or just ad revenue on a podcast you a lot of people don't have that luxury and i think the frustrating thing for me is the field misses out on talented people because of it right there's talented people that maybe can't afford to get into it and, and the way i look at it too is you know i was able to work my way up it took me to get the job where i'm at at weei which i first of all thank Thankful to them for the opportunity. It's been a blast. It's an awesome place to work. It took me, Shukri, about seven and a half to eight years of work to get from Mm. where I started to get there, right? And some of that was paid work. Some of it was unpaid work, right? Some of it, you know, was having another job outside of journalism to pay the bills while I did that stuff, right? It it was all part of it, right? And and it still is to an extent. So, like that's there's a fine line. So like if some publication or podcast company or radio, whatever, they say, yeah, we want to have you, but we can't pay you right now. Well, I'm not saying not to do it, but you want to have in your mind, okay, I have another way to make money while I do this. And I'm not going to work 60 hours a week for these people if they're paying me nothing or paying me peanuts, right? Because your time Correct. is valuable, valuable. too, not just money, right? So I, I think that's the thing you need. Like there's been times in my media career where I've worked for free for a while and done a good job and then said, okay, now I want to get paid. And plenty of times I've been told yes. And at times I've told no. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm only going to stick with this if I really enjoy it and have fun. Otherwise, I'm going to be looking for something else. And I'm probably going to be looking for something else anyway because I'm giving them all my time and all this work for nothing, right? So it's again, it's a fine line. There's going to be times where if you really want to get to the next step, you probably have to take a little less money to get there and maybe do a podcast on the side that doesn't give you any money and just exposure or something like that. But again, I think you should, there's a tendency with some companies in this industry 
and I'm lucky in that I don't work for any of those companies, but there's a tendency with some I've seen from the outside, mm -hmm. they will just use people for free or minimal money. And then when those people get sick of it, they'll just find the next one. And they're not worried about developing anyone or keeping someone. They just want to pay nothing or pay little, and they have no problem taking advantage of people. So that's just the last point I want to make on that is there's a really fine line between working your way up and getting a take advantage of and don't let yourself get taken advantage of. And I think that's a phenomenal point because I think when you're, when you give people the, the idea that you're desperate, but not, there's a difference between being hungry and desperate. People, unfortunately take advantage of people who are desperate. Sure. You see it all the freaking time. And I think it's, I think it's a, it's a dangerous road to travel along because you could be rather be, you can be gullible you could you could really not know or ask to like you know which which direction you like or do you do you want to go ultimately and i think it's great that you pointed out in terms of um in, in terms of you know like you know having you know having worked like for little to know um to know like on funds and so forth which is which is why like i know for me in my experience from the first time that I was in Boston, that there were times where I I did this absolutely like for nothing, but rather just just for the grind and, and just just rather they're trying to work 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 and and I think that a lot of people don't really understand that and and I think that there there are times where yes you may want to get to a certain level a certain place in like in in, in sports media and so forth, but you have to understand that. At the very beginning, how however long it may take, it may take you four or five. In, in your case, you talked about seven years before you finally got your foot in the door at, at EEI. But before then, before then, you were doing and still doing work with Sports Map Radio. Yeah. It takes time, and then the reality is, and I learned this both the easy way and the hard way. You got bills to pay. Yeah. You got to put money in your pockets. You you got to eat. You can't you cannot walk around starving, Marvin. You just can't. Like, so I, I understand and I agree with everything that you're saying, because I've been there. We both have been there, done that. And I think that is, is a really important point to drive home, especially for people that are now looking to get in, into this career field and as well as into this industry field as well. And I want to shift gears to yep. uh, speaking of career fields, because because there is there is a particular head coach who has had to switch career fields, so to speak, Gerard Mayo. I mean, his story in itself is, is truly remarkable. When you think about where he has been, obviously having been a player, played his entire career with the Patriots, to um, you know, like leaving football for a little bit and coming back and being part of Bill Belichick's staff and having the opportunity to become the head coach of the New England Patriots. And I, I and I will admit that I haven't really talked about this a whole lot on the previous episodes from, from from earlier this week, but I want to talk about it now because I strongly feel and believe that what Gerard Mayo is doing right now as the head coach of the New England Patriots, as the first African-American head coach of, of the New England Patriots, it's no small thing. And he talked about it during his introductory press conference just two days ago, which to me, didn't surprise me that it clearly ruffled feathers, but I think there, there was a really poignant um, point that he made in that press conference that he talked about how 
you know, giving people the opportunity, you know, like, like giving people of different backgrounds, whether you're able or, or disabled, um, black, white, green, purple, and so forth. And I thought that was so powerful because the Patriots have been around now for over 60 seasons. This is the first time that we've seen Gerard Mayo, an African-American, get the opportunity to become a head coach. And we know that the, in the NFL, there's a, there's a diversity problem. We know that that's league-wide. It's not just a, a Patriots issue. So with all that being said, I, I do think that this is not only a monumental moment, but it's a monumental moment for the Patriots in terms of not only just beginning a new era, but showing that it is very possible to, uh, to, to, to get the opportunity that so many people are deserving of it. They just don't get the chance. So my question to you, John, is what are your takeaways from the Gerard Mayer introductory um, press conference and your early impressions as Gerard Mayer, the head coach, as he's trying to get his foot running as the head coach of the Patriots? Yeah, well, first he's the uh, only head coach whose jersey I own, so I guess he's got that going. For I gotta him. get me a, I gotta get me yeah. a Gerard Mayo jersey. I got one. Uh, I, I want to say I got it in like 2010, 2011. I still have it somewhere in the oh closet. So, um, but I know. Look, and your point too about the first African American coach. Depending on how the draft goes, they might have an African American starting quarterback as well next year. That's so we'll see where point. they go. Jaden Daniels, yeah, yeah, we'll see where they go. I'd be happy with Jaden Daniels. I'll tell you Same. that. Look, when they so it's funny because. Mayo himself, I, I like, and I think he's going to be a good coach. And I think like there's two things that I think the Patriots really failed at the last couple of years and why Bill Belichick is not here. Whether you agree or not, I think these are the two main reasons. Mm -hmm. One is their roster flat out wasn't good enough. And secondly, the player and coach development, which for 20 years had been, I think, the best in the NFL, the wheels came off. And, and the example I use, Shukri, is look at the Patriots offense this year. Can you name any player that's a better player than he was the year before? And the answer is no. No. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, Trent Brown for a while was, but then he kind of fell off and he had attitude yeah. issues at the end. There's no one on that offense who in the course of 12 months got better. And that's a failure of player development. And you Can can't you even say you can't even say Ramondre Stevenson either because Ramondre Stevenson was, was, was solid last year. This year yeah. he took a step back. And I would even say like Stevenson on Wenu and, and even Hunter mm -hmm. Henry. Like Correct. they mm -hmm. stayed the same. They didn't get better. Like it's what, like, okay, they didn't get maybe worse. Like Kendrick Bourne, his numbers went up, but he wasn't a better player this year. They just used him more. Matt Patricia wouldn't use him for whatever reason. Right. So mm -hmm. nobody got better. And then I look at the coaches. All right. I think Bill O'Brien's a better coordinator than Matt Patricia. Didn't work out that way, but I think he is better. Did any of the other assistants, like, did you feel like their positions were getting coached better than the last year? Like I didn't nope. really think so. Nope. And the reason I bring that up, is because defensively, those things did happen. Players on that defense were better year over year from 2020 to 2021 to 22 to 23. Huge credit of that is Gerard Mayo. And it's not him alone. It's Steve Belichick. It's Mike Pellegrino. It's Demarcus Covington, who, by the way, is my pick for the next DC. I hope he gets that. I job think I, I could not agree more. And I'm, I'm yeah. so glad you said that. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think he's a stud, like oh, as yeah. a rising coach in the league. But my point is, like, you look at the Patriots defense, right? Like, just Christian Barmore is a better player than he was a year ago. Josh Uche is a better player than he was a year ago. Jelani Tavai is a better player. Kyle Duggar, at least against the run, was a much better player. I shouldn't say yeah. much better, but he was better, I felt, than he was the year before. I mean, Christian Gonzalez in his short time, it felt like he got better as training camp went on and the season started, right? So you have guys all over that roster that were getting better on defense. And defensive coaches, you felt like, 
week in and week out. They had good game plans, good schemes. Guys were pretty fundamentally sound. There weren't too many times where they're missing a lot of tackles, like mm-hmm. things like that. They were the players and coaches on that side were getting better. So what I'm excited about for Mayo is I hope he can bring that to the offense and the special teams. Because if he can do that, that's going to give them a huge step forward in their rebuild, not to mention the cap space and the draft picks they have. But that, to me, that was the biggest failing of the last two years, was the roster, which is not going to be fully Mayo's control, but the player and coach development, which will be under his control. And I think he can energize that. Now, the only quibble I really have, and I know this was probably unavoidable given the way his contract was worked out, is I do wish they had done an expansive search, even if they had ended up hiring him, because you just look Mm. at the names available, right? Brian Flores was my number one choice. I would have loved for him to come back and be the head coach, right? He's my number one. But then you also have like Jim Harbaugh is available. Not too often a guy like that is available. Ben Johnson, look at what the Detroit Lions offense is doing with a bunch of young players, right? Not too often a guy like that is available. Leslie Frazier, a guy who's been a great defensive coach for years, but also has head coaching experience, right? So there was a lot of, like, that's the thing. This year, like Frank Smith in Miami, great offensive coordinator under Mike McDaniel. This was a year, unlike a lot of other years, where I think there were a bunch of highly qualified candidates. So I do wish they could have done an expansive search. Now, that's not Mayo's fault, but I I wish they could have done an, just, and even, let's say you hire Mayo, but you bring in Ben Johnson for an interview and he gives you an idea or two that then Mayo can implement with their new offense because they may run a new offense. Maybe he can implement something like that you know, going forward. Now you didn't have that opportunity to do. So that's the mm-hmm. only quibble I have. And But to be honest with you, Shukri, they could have done an expansive search and I would not be surprised at all if they had picked Mayo anyway because I think they really liked Mayo and I think he's got a ton of potential and I think he's going to be a really good head coach. So again, that the, them not doing a search, that's more of just something I wish they had done, but that's not a knock on him, right? That's nothing to do with him. So I like him as a coach. I think he's going to be a good coach. And the key to me is the player development. And the other key, and I think the biggest question, Shukri, that the Patriots need to answer, and specifically mm-hmm. him, yeah, what is his offensive philosophy? Because you look at it, right? He played on the Patriots when they had McDaniels and O'Brien as coordinators. He was mm-hmm. coaching with the Patriots when they had McDaniels and O'Brien. But then in between, there was the Patrician Judge thing where they tried to change the offense and it failed. But does does Mayo look at it and say, you know, that year they tried to change the offense. I think they had the right idea, just the wrong people doing it. And he wants to do something like that. Or does he look at it and say, no, we had the right system. Our players are just bad this year. Like, I want to know what his offensive philosophy is. That's the biggest question I have for him as a coach. What Because who's he going to hire as offensive coordinator? That's probably going to give us our answer. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the biggest thing because that's going to affect who your OC is, what you do in free agency, who you pick third overall in the draft. It might even determine who your second round pick is as well. So that's the biggest thing going forward I'm watching for. But overall, I know I'm giving you a long-winded answer here, Shukri, but overall, oh, perfect. Go ahead. I, I like the hire. I think he's going to do a great job. Player development and offensive philosophy are my biggest uh, questions, and not even questions in a negative way. I just want to know more. I'm with you in terms of wanting to know what the office will look like this this upcoming season because I do think depending on the personnel that the Patriots get via the draft or through free agency, it will tell us what kind of office that they're going to have. I just think that wh- whoever is going to end up being the starting quarterback, 
And I'm sure and I'm sure that the next quarterback for the Patriots is going to be through the draft. It's not going to be Mac Jones. But I wonder, based on personnel, because I do think it does matter who you draft or who you sign in free agency to add to your offense matters. I look at the Detroit, the Detroit Lions right now as the perfect example of that. You mean to tell me that they are running the same offense if Jared Goff wasn't wasn't their quarterback? No. If if you you mean to tell me that they would have as good of a passing attack as they do if they didn't go ahead and draft a more uh, Saint Brown to be, to be the number one yeah. receiver? Oh, look at that offensive five. line. Yeah, right? the like offensive the line. Yes. There. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry to cut you off. It's just that Detroit offensive line jumps off the screen to me. It's every a time perfect I example. It's yeah. a reason why I'm, I talk. I'm talking. There's a reason why I brought up the Lions now because they are the perfect example. Free agency drafting, free agency. You go out and you make a trade for Jared Goff. You move on from, from Matthew Stafford, and look look what you have now. You have a Lions team that, frankly, not to get too far ahead of, ahead of myself. It would not surprise me if they beat the Buccaneers on Sunday. It really wouldn't surprise me. Oh, I think they will. I I, th- I think they I think they actually will. So so. Moving, moving from Patriots, I actually want to touch on the, the NFC Divisional Weekend, NFC and AFC Divisional Weekend, because what matchup do you look at and you say, this is not an interesting matchup all the way around? Houston that's and fu- Baltimore. Yeah. That's <laughs> what it, happened. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny because I'm trying to think of like when you say not interesting, and I'm like trying to pull up my notes here and be like, which one did I find any not interesting? But all of them are intriguing. Yeah. I mean, maybe. And even Green Bay, San Francisco, like I think San Francisco is yeah. a lot better than them. And I think San Francisco is going to, but even that, I mean, you could have said that about Dallas and they walked into Dallas and beat the heck out of them. So yeah. like, I think Houston and Baltimore is intriguing for a couple of reasons. One, D'Amico Ryans comes from that San Fran defense. There's a lot of playmakers here. Mm-hmm. How do they try to defend Lamar Jackson? The last time the Ravens had a first round by a few years ago, they lost in the divisional round. Now it's I think they've learned from it, mm-hmm. but you know, we have to see. I want to see Zay Flowers in the playoffs. And the other piece of that, me as a Patriots fan, Houston is the blueprint I'm kind of looking at to see how the Patriots can quickly become good again. Houston was terrible last year. They get the best quarterback in the draft, a good young head coach, though he's defensive minded like May. I know some people are worried about that, but Miko Ryan, I don't, but he's a defensive minded mm-hmm. head coach, good young playmakers. And all of a sudden, boom, they're in a divisional round. Now, I know they have. Nico Collins, who they drafted a couple of years ago. They have other guys, but to me, that's the Patriots' quickest path, quickest path back to being great is to yeah. do that. So I'm kind of watching that too. I mean, I think Tampa Bay, Detroit's going to be a really good game. Kansas City, Buffalo is going to be a great game. The only game that I'm like, eh, might not be that close is San Fran, Green Bay. But even that one, I'm excited to watch because of Jordan Love and that young Packers offense and all the strides they've made. And I think San Francisco's the best team to watch in the NFL right now. I think speaking of that matchup between Green Bay and San Fran, I think that matchup in itself is one that everybody's sleeping on. But I have a funny feeling that that matchup may actually be one of the two very best this entire weekend. This is why. Because I'm a firm believer that young quarterbacks tend to be a lot more naive especially when it's your first time go go, go around in, a, in, in an NFL playoffs. I think back to 2008, the Baltimore Ravens, a young Joe Flacco. He ain't know no better. 
until he ran into the ball until the Pittsburgh Steelers that end up winning the Super Bowl, obviously. Yeah. I think back um to Eli Manning. Yeah. his first Super Bowl run in 07. Yeah. He ain't know no about it. And prior to that, he he lost two straight wild card games, 05 against Carolina, 06 against the Eagles. But with this Packers team, and they're and they finally getting hot at the right time. Jordan Love, I I have felt, is probably the second best quarterback in the league over the course of the last seven, eight weeks. The best, in my opinion, is playing in Buffalo with Josh Allen. Josh Allen has been on a whole other planet, a whole other universe these last eight weeks, which is why I look at Green Bay San Fran and I say, hmm, this is going to be a battle between Jordan Love and as well as that, that nine of secondary. Because that nine of secondary, better yet, linebackers. Linebackers against the quarterback. How do they scheme? That's that's where I'm most interested in seeing. Because, listen, Fred Warner is going to spy Jordan Love like it's no business. I expect Fred Warner and, and as well as Nick Bosa to basically make life absolutely miserable for Jordan Love. And I want to see how he handles that. Yeah. That specifically as pertains to Packers Niners. Yeah, it's a great point, and, and your point about them being naive, I, I think the Packers are one of those young teams that just doesn't have any fear, right? Hey, look, if you're them, you just mm -hmm. went into Dallas and you punched around the Cowboys. Why would you be worried about going yeah. to San Fran to, to play the Niners? I mean, whatever, you're all in your first and second year, so you know they probably think, hey, if we don't get it done now, we'll be back again in the future. And, of course, we know how hard it is to win, but their mentality mm -hmm. in the moment is, hey, we're just going to go out there and play great. You know, I think the nerves maybe – aren't an issue. And I, I like your point about Fred Warner. I mean, him and Greenlaw might be the best linebacker. I mean, Fred Warner is the best linebacker in the league. Him and yes. Greenlaw might be the best duo in the league there. And, and I think, could this be a game where their signing of Javon Hargrave, you know, makes a difference? Could be this a game where they're trading for Chase Young makes a big difference, right? Because it's not just the Bosa and Warner, you know, and Armstead show up front. There's, you know, <laughs> they have five guys, six guys up front that mm -hmm. are great players. And it's amazing that secondary, even with the injury to Hufunga, has still been great, you know, and it, it's still been a defense that's been great. You know, and I I'm really excited to see, and I'm knocking on wood when I say this, a healthy 49ers team in the playoffs. Because really the biggest thing that's derailed them in the playoffs the last five years has been Jimmy Garoppolo's play and also their health. That's been the injury that's probably year. the those are probably the two biggest reasons they haven't won a Super Bowl in the last five years. I mean, last year, let's not forget that NFC Championship game was seven to seven midway through the second quarter, and the 49ers did not have a quarterback. I mean, that, they were in a seven seven game without a quarterback. So I just want to see this team be healthy, and I'm excited to watch that this weekend. And I, I agree. Like last year, like if Brock Purdy does not get injured in that NFC title game, is there a chance that the Niners are playing in the Super oh, Bowl? I think they win, the and I think they win the Super Bowl. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think. And I, I personally and now, think. And now, so. Yeah, like, and now they are the, they're the number one seed. They, they have home field obviously tomorrow, and then if they win, they have home field for the NFC title game. So I do think that if Purdy is healthy and they and everybody stays healthy, I think that the Niners would should in fact win this game and as well as get to the Super Bowl, but. Chiefs Bills is what I think is the most intriguing game of this entire yeah. weekend. Yeah. Because Mahomes has never played a road playoff game in his career. Amazingly, until now. 
And Buffalo has been on a run in which that I and I talked about this on a on like two episodes ago when I spoke with Travis Thomas of Nesson and WEI. And I said that the Bills run right now is reminiscent of what the what the 07 and, and 2011 Giants did and those two runs getting hot at the right time and, and playing wild card weekend and just blitzing through the playoffs. This is what yeah. the Bills are doing right now. But there is one major pause for concern, and that is specifically with the Buffalo Bills. They are they are literally the walking wounded coming into this game. But not where it matters most of the the quarterback. But their defense is – they are wounded. They are banged up. And I wonder how is it going to play into the Chiefs' favor. But even then, this is not the same Chiefs offense that we've seen in years past. This is an offense that has led the NFL in drop passes this year. And it matters. Don't think because the playoffs start – Suddenly, that the issue just suddenly just it just evaporated into thin air. No, I wonder as it pertains to this match between the Chiefs at the Bills. Number one, can his receive can Mahomes' receivers give him any help? And then number two, can the Bills' defense also, despite its injury woes right now, can they muster enough to be able to make critical stops? against Mahomes, and then lastly, including Josh Allen. Can he continue to light it up and not turn the ball over as that's been the biggest case for him as to why the Bills have been on the run they've been on so far? Yeah, and it's funny because when you have a game with Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, you think about offense and points. I actually think this is going to be a lower-scoring game, and and lower scoring for them is like, you know, 20 to 14 or 21, 17. I'm not saying it's going to be 10, seven, but we're used to these guys, you know, 28, 24, 34, 31 type games. I think it's going to be in the 21 to 14, 21, 17 range. Mm -hmm. And really there's two guys I'm really watching in this game. Shukri. One is Rasheed Rice for the chiefs, because you said who on the chiefs is going to help out Mahomes. He had eight catches for 130 yards and a touchdown against Miami. He's really emerged. I feel like this year as a solid second option behind Travis Kelsey, and they're going to need it, right? Because this chief's defense is one of the best in the league, but the offense Mm -hmm. has been middling. So they're going to need someone besides Mahomes and Kelsey to make some big plays in this game. If they're going to win on the road and the other guy I'm watching, for Buffalo is James Cook because I think to your point about Buffalo's defense being a bit hobbled and the way they've been calling their offense since Joe Brady took over as coordinator I think they're going to run the ball a decent amount now part of that's going to be Josh Allen's legs I mean he had what 74 or 72 yeah. y- 74 yards rushing last week including a 52 mm-hmm. yard touchdown but James Cook in the eight games that Joe Brady has been the coordinator of this offense and that includes the playoff game he's got 586 rushing yards 228 receiving yards and four total touchdowns. He's been a huge part of their offense. I mean, that's on pace for a full season, over a thousand yards rushing over Mm -hmm. 500 yards receiving likely and eight to 10 touchdowns, right? That's a huge part of the offense. So I think much like they did against the Dallas Cowboys earlier this year, when Dallas went up there and Buffalo felt like ran them over. I mean, Josh Allen wasn't even a factor in that game and the bills still Mm -hmm. blew him out. I think that's what the bills are going to try to do here. Now they're going to have to go up against Chris Jones and that Chiefs front. So I think that's really the matchup I'm watching is that Bill. And it's ironic, right? Because you have Mahomes, you have Allen. Every other time they've played, those have been the two guys I'm watching. This particular matchup, though, 
Can Rasheed Rice make some big plays out there at receiver for the Chiefs? And can James Cook make some big plays, especially in the passing game, for that Bills offense? And I think whichever one of those guys has the better game could Mm -hmm. very well determine who wins this one. But I think it's going to be the most defensive of all the Chiefs-Bills matchups we've seen over the last few years. And I also wonder, including when you talk about Rasheed Rice, um, I was thinking about Isaiah Pacheco. How yeah, like, good like, could, like, could like could he could he be even more of an impactful player in this game on Sunday night against the Bills in terms of the Chiefs run game so that they wouldn't have to solely rely on solely on the arm of, of Mahomes and obviously the like the passing attack and whatnot. But I want to shift gears and turn to talk about the Bucks and the Lions because there is a big piece of me that is hoping that the Lions beat the Bucks on Sunday afternoon. But in the spirit of being a nitpicker, I am concerned for the Lions. And it's not personnel-wise I'm actually concerned about. It's actually the head coach, Dan Campbell, because we've seen him be so aggressive that his aggressiveness has played against him. And with an inexperienced head coach in these NFL playoffs, I wonder when he gets into critical situations in the third quarter, fourth quarter even, how will he handle those situations? Because America had a glimpse of that in that Lions-Cowboys game just, just not that long ago. And I wonder now with the lights even brighter and furthermore you go into the playoffs and each game getting bigger and bigger, how does he handle that? How will Jared Goff perform second game at home against the Bucs? And the Bucs' defense is no, it's no sleeper of a defense either. I mean, you, you talk about you talk about um, Tom Frazier, who, 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 who himself has got a lot of experience with the defense. And has has had his um his yeah, fingerprints. Jamel Dean in that like secondary, Jamel, Vita yeah. Vea up front. I mean, there's a guy, Devin White, guys that not too long ago were making big plays to win a Super Bowl. Correct. Right? And, and, and now, it, mm-hmm. yeah, and no, now and it's funny because go ahead. And and like and so I wonder what will be the bigger factor in this game between the Bucks and Lions on Sunday? Is it going to be Todd Bowles? His um his fingerprints on the Bucks defense, or is it going to be Dan Campbell and his and his over aggressiveness being used against him in big moments in the game? Yeah, and it's funny. I'm glad you brought up that aggressiveness piece because after that Cowboys game, the biggest thing I said is, can the Lions learn from this? Because this is a team that has not been good for 30 years. I mean, I know they yeah. made the playoffs 10 years ago, but they were a wild card team. They haven't been this good in 30 years. So all these guys are learning how to be this good together. Now, some of them have been on good teams before, but most of them are young guys or cast off guys that really mm-hmm. have not been on a team this good before. So they're kind of learning and growing through it. And we saw in the Cowboys game, it did not work out. What I really liked about this Rams game, which I thought was the best decision Dan Campbell made. There was a little over four minutes to go in the game. The Rams faced a third and four incomplete pass. They did not convert it, but there was a holding penalty and they were just on the edge of field goal range. Now, if Dan Campbell wanted to be extra aggressive, he could have declined the penalty and said, all right, you try to convert a fourth and four kick along field goal. 
He mm-hmm. went a little more conservative there, made it third and 14, which is a risk too, right? Because then they have another third down. Uh, excuse me, the Rams did not convert it, ended up punting. Lions ran out the clock the rest of the game and won. And I thought that decision there to me, maybe two months ago, Dan Campbell makes the over-aggressive decision and it backfires. Because I think there's a line between aggressiveness and hubris. And I like aggressiveness, but I think what you saw in the Dallas game was hubris, right? Once you get pushed back to the seven-yard line, just kick the extra point, dude, instead of trying to go for two from the seven, right? That was hubris, and it ended up backfiring. What we saw against the Rams, we saw some aggressiveness, but then we saw pull back a little when it was prudent, and I was impressed by that. So hopefully that carries over. Biggest thing I'm watching, though, in this game, Shukri, Tampa Bay's offensive explosive plays in the pass game because Mm. Detroit is near the bottom of the league. They might be 32nd, actually, but they're near the bottom of the league in passes allowed of 20 yards or more on defense. Tampa's offense is near the top of the league in passes of 20 yards. And they got home run hitters. They got home run hitters in Mike Evans, too, which creates matchup problems. Yeah. And as you know, Baker's been just playing great the last, you Mm -hmm. know, really all year, but especially the last Mm -hmm. month or two. So if Detroit can limit those explosive pass plays, I think they win the game. If the Bucs throw multiple touchdowns of 35 yards or more, then I think Tampa can win. Now, I think Detroit can score enough to win. I think this is going to be the biggest shootout of the weekend. I think Detroit scores enough to win. The biggest thing I'm watching, though, is how does Detroit handle the Tampa passing game and do they give up explosive plays? I think that'll end up determining the game. It's going to be a fun matchup. Um <laughs> like no, like no, no matter how you slice and yeah. dice a divisional, the divisional weekend. My 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 predictions are, I think I think the Ravens will win. They'll, they'll beat Houston. I do think that um that the Bills will prevail over the Chiefs. So it's gonna be Bills Ravens AFC Championship game. NFC side, I do think it's going to be the Niners who beat the Packers, and as well as um like the Bucks Lions. I think I do think that the Lions will win. So it'll be Lions Niners NFC title game, as well as um as well as like the, the Ravens and the Bills in the AFC title game. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch these four yeah. games um between between Saturday and Sunday. I've long believed that the divisional round is the best weekend of football all year because you have four games, all eight teams are great teams by this point. The stakes are really high. I cannot wait to watch these games. And I'm with you too. I agree on those four picks, but I think this is the best weekend of football all year long. I, I absolutely agree. And I want to shift to, to talking about the Red Sox because the Red Sox have found a way to, to anger the masses yet again, color me shocked. I'm not shocked. And after seeing and reading the excerpt that was in the Boston globe earlier this week, I am of the belief that the Red Sox are and the place where they're trying to, 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 to like sew the thread gently along the along the uh, the creases, you know, while trying to mask the reality of how, of how they're really operating. And I think what they're doing and pulling the, the sheep's wool over the eyes of of Red Sox fans is completely dead wrong. I'm not even speaking emotionally on this one, but rather I think it's completely disingenuous that the Red Sox are telling you we have had a very difficult time trying to bring in arms that's going to help the Red Sox rotation. Meanwhile, I just watched MLB Network last night 
and saw that there's a lot of quality arms available on the free agent market as we're getting closer and closer to pitchers and catch reporting less than a month, by the way, to spring training. So, John, which one is it? Is the Are the Red Sox bad liars or are there master gaslighters to Red Sox fans in, in New England? Um, I can I pick a third answer and it says sure. they just don't want to spend that much money because that's kind of what it feels sure. like to be honest with you, Shukri. Look, yeah, I think it's frustrating, right? Because look at the 2018 World Series team, arguably the best team in the history of the Red Sox, the best team in Major League Baseball that year. You had this core of guys that, by the way, mostly guys on homegrown guys or guys you like Chris Sale, you used homegrown guys to acquire in a trade. But Betts, mm -hmm. Bogarts, Ben Attendee, Bradley, Vasquez, Devers, all homegrown guys, all great players. Yeah. One of those guys is left Shukri. Like literally, you're the boss. It'd be one thing, right? If this was that every 10 years the Tampa Bay Rays get to the World Series, but the next time around it's all different guys because they're a small market. No. Like you're the Red Sox. And you have one guy, one significant contributor from that team left. Like, to me, that is unacceptable, totally unacceptable yeah. and deeply frustrating as a Red Sox fan, too, because it's not like you didn't have the money to re-sign them either. Like, you know, yeah, you did. if you have the money to sign David Price to the deal he signed, sign Chris Sale to the deal he signed, then you could assign Mookie Betts to a deal. And I know people are going to say, well, you had to trade price and sales deal was bad. Okay. Well, you probably could have not made the sale deal and paid Mookie instead. But even with those two deals, you could have paid Mookie. I mean, you saw it a few years later, they gave $300 million right. to Devers, right? So mm -hmm. it feels like they have a philosophy, first of all, where they really don't want to give out 10 year contracts more. They gave one to Devers. It's the only one they've given. But since I think 2020, the only time they've signed a free agent Shukri to a nine-figure contract, actually, I think this is since 2019, was Trevor Story. Yeah, like that's the correct. only free agent they have. That it to me, when you have holes on your starting pitching staff, defensive problems as well in your infield, and the only guy you've signed is a guy with injury issues, is Trevor Story. Like that, and I like Trevor Story, but that's the only guy you're going to sign. To a nine figure, like it feels like honestly, Shukri, and as a Red Sox fan, I hate to say this, it feels mm -hmm. like they really don't want to win that much. Like, I'm not saying they want to lose, I'm not saying they don't care, but it feels like the passion for winning and the energy for winning from the ownership level is not what it was not five them. years ago, not what it was 15 or 20 years ago. It just frankly does not. I mean, you look at we're in January of 2004, look at the 2004 Red Sox. What the second they every time they've won the World Series, they've had a top three payroll with this ownership right. group, by the way. Mm -hmm. But just look at 20 that old four Red Sox. They went out and got Kurt Schilling. They went out and signed Keith Folk. They almost mm -hmm. got A-Rod, but even though they didn't, they had Manny, they had Ortiz, they had Kevin Millar, they had Johnny Damon, they had Jason Veritek. They had all these guys who were paid well, and it made a huge difference. They had Pedro. It made a difference on them winning a World Series. Look at the 2018 team. Like you're not gonna win a World Series with a mid-tier payroll. Maybe once in a while, like the 2015 Royals, like, okay. But generally, you're not going to win a World Series with a mid-tier payroll. And just, it's really frustrating to me, Shukri, because this offseason, they went in clearly needing multiple starting pitchers. And you brought up the point. Look at the market. Best they've done is, and I like Giolito, but really? He's a number like, three starter. That's yeah, all he is. I, I think at his absolute ceiling, he's like a solid number two. But you're right. He's probably a number three starter. And when you add 
guys like Yamamoto on the market, Snell still out there, Montgomery's out there, Corbin Burns was available for at least a while, Dylan Cease, like all these guys on the market. And even you go back to the last year, and I know we had a tough year last year, but Carlos Rodone for the Yankees, like mm-hmm. all these guys have been available, but specifically this year, and you come away with none of them as of now. Like, and I know some of them are still out there. Like to me, that's just, it's a clear signal to me that they are not that into winning right now. And I don't think they expect to be really good again for another year or two. Now they might snip the playoffs, get in the neighborhood, but they don't expect to be really good again for another year or two. And we're not going to see them spend until that time. And and it's, and it's frustrating because I know when the Red Sox are good and they're spending money and the on-field product is good. You see an emotional investment, yeah. From like you can see, I would even say you see the emotional investment from the fans. Like I don't think it's far fetched to say that when you don't see that level of commitment. And I saw it in back to back summers of 2022, 2023, like back to back last place finishes, and it's like, uh, what, like what, what's 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 missing here? Clearly, the lack of, I feel like the lack of desire to want to win has never been more apparent. And I initially thought that all of this was a was a Heimblum problem. No, this is now extended to Craig Breslow as well. well I'm like, and that's that's a good point. It's like, why fire Heimblum if you're going to do the same thing with the next mm-hmm. guy? Like that's and look, I think Heimblum was fired in large part because he had back to back really bad trade deadlines, and, and the Mookie trade doesn't look good in hindsight either. And even though I think that was kind of pushed on him from ownership, I don't think he got the best return he could have for that, and he could have pushed harder back to try to re-sign it. But that's a whole separate debate. I think he was oh, yeah. fired largely because of back to back bad trade deadlines. And when Craig Breslow was brought in, we heard the full throttle comments at the press conference, which they've already walked back. But even mm-hmm. take those out of it, the sense was. This is a guy who's like Bloom, but he actually will be aggressive when they need to be aggressive. It was like he's got a little bit of that Dombrowski aggressiveness and a lot of that Bloom build it up from the farm, but that little bit of Dombrowski aggressiveness will help put you over the top. We have I don't know if he is just not into a lot of these reagents. I think it's more ownership is telling him they don't want big spending right now, but if that's the case, like, why not just keep the guy you had? Like, it doesn't make sense to me if you're not going to do anything different. Like, it just, that's the thing. Like, what what are they doing that's any real different and to help make them better other than just waiting for the prospects to develop? And I think it's, I think it's just a bad way to do business, especially for a big, for a big market team. If you're just sitting around waiting for prospects to develop and, and there's always an inherent risk when you are a big market team that's sitting around hoping that big, prospects will end up being impact big leaguers and that's what Bressel was talking about in the exit that was extracted from from the boston globe and it was like dude you're not the tampa bay rays like where you're you, you're afforded that, that that kind of luxury where you can sit around and wait for prospects to like to like to blossom and become impact big leaguers you just you're just not afforded that right now but what i will say is what you are afforded to is witnessing something special going on in Causeway. And I'm talking about the Celtics because they have a chance to go for 21 and 0 at the time of this recording. They're 20 and 0 at home right now. And this is clearly the best team in the NBA. And it's not hyperbole to say that the Celtics team this year has felt very much like it's hashtag, it's different, it feels different. 
it, they just look different. I see a much more focused and intense Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown that are that that are thinking champ. They're playing like championship level or bust. And then you have the the newcomers in Drew Holiday, who I have said this from day one is probably the biggest move of the offseason, even bigger than getting um Kristaps Porzingis. And what you're seeing is a team that is just like, man, the vibes remind me of that 07-08 um, Celtics team that, that won it all. John, as we currently are sitting here, as we're now entering late January, and they are a team right now that they should have no problem coming out of the East. I think they're better than Milwaukee, yeah. defensively for sure, except for that for, for getting blown out after after um you know having that unbelievable game against the Timberwolves. And again, the doors blown up the very next night in Milwaukee. They are a better team than Milwaukee. They are a better team than Philadelphia. Even even under Nick Nurse, who who has been a big reason why the Sixers have been able to be um fairly more consistent this year, but they lack the depth that the Celtics have. John, what is your what is your your thoughts on where you see this team currently stands right now, and something that they could do to potentially make this team even better? Yeah, look, I think they're the best team in the NBA, and you hit a lot of the points. Tatum and Brown look like they've leveled up, and I think Porzingis too. I mean, this is just a guy, and I think in Celtics franchise history, they've never had a player like this. And I'm not saying he's the mm -hmm. best player in franchise history, but a guy that you know just last season. He shot 38.5% from three, and he led the NBA in points per post-up. They've never had a guy be that elite from the three-point line and from the post, and we've seen it this year. He's taken pressure off everybody else on the offensive end. He can hit threes. He can post up inside. Mm -hmm. He plays really good defense as well, and that was the thing, right? When they traded Robert Williams, some people worried, hey, they're going to have a little bit of a drop-off defensively. I was one of no. them. Mm -hmm. They have Drew Holiday, and Porzingis has been you know, maybe not the – all defensive, like defensive player of the year level defensive Robert Williams, but he's been not that far off. So they've been really good defensively with Porzingis and to me, and as a passer, I think Porzingis really underrated as a passer. Jalen Brown, the athletic ability has always been there and some of the shooting's been there, but he looks like he's putting a lot of it together better than he ever has before. Tatum looks like a top five player in the NBA and Derek White. I mean, I know that campaign about Derek White's an all-star, and he really yeah. does look like an all-star. I mean, and the thing about Derek White, every single time he makes a play, it's the right play, right? Yeah. Like whether it's defensively, whether it's with the ball passing, whether it's shooting, whether it's just with moving without the ball. I've never watched a Celtics game this year and thought, oh, wow, Derek White really screwed that up. Like, yeah, he's had nights where he hasn't shot well, or he's had some nights where, you know, he's missed a pass here or there, but I'm never like, oh, wow, he's really screwing this stuff up, right? He always yeah. makes the right play, and I think that is so, so valuable to have, especially for a team that's this talented. I think Drew Holiday's championship experience makes a big difference. I also think the championship experience of Sam Cassell and Charles Lee on the coaching staff makes mm -hmm. a huge difference as well. So now you went from last year having nobody that had won a championship to now you have a guy on your roster and two guys as assistant coaches that have won championships. I think that makes a big difference. As far as what could they do to improve, I would like to see them add a front court depth piece because Porzingis does have the past injury concerns and Horford's in his late thirties, but Cornette's been good. Is Cornette a guy? I, I think they can rely on, on the playoffs. I don't know about that yet. I'd mm -hmm. like to see a little more depth in the front court if they can find it, but 
I'd want to be cautious about that because I wouldn't want to trade really any pieces out of their top seven or eight because they've been so good as is. So I, I think they're the best team in the NBA. I think if they stay healthy, they're going to win a championship. And that's really comes down to me. The rest of this year is can they stay healthy? And I I could not agree more. Like they play like the best team in the NBA offensively, defensively. And I think getting the best perimeter defender in the NBA and Drew Holiday was huge because the day that they traded away Marcus Smart, and I had this concern then, you trade him away, and it was the right move. There's no knock on, on Marcus Smart at all, but it was the right move. And I said it was time, it was time to break up the core. But my concern was you're you're losing. A, a guard who was the defensive player of the year in the NBA. How or whom are you going to replace him with? And that and getting Drew Holiday was the perfect answer for this team because I I cannot believe I'm I'm even going to say this, but I strongly believe that Drew Holiday. I think he's been the defensive player of the year in the NBA. I think he's been that vital defensively. For this team, and it's not taking nothing away from from Derek White, who, as as you mentioned, you, there's not a single game or position that that you that you watched this year where you thought, when man, that that was lousy, that was the wrong move. Like he's been the Patrice Berger on the basketball, if you will, like always making the right plays, and that's been him this year. And Porzingis defensively, I mean, like the, especially like the like the post up offense, man. I want to be blunt and say this. Where the hell was this two years ago when the Celtics could have used them against the Warriors in the finals? They 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 sorely like that, and they have it now, which is why, let's say if the Timberwolves come out of the West, and that's, that's, that's if they somehow get past the defending champion of the Nuggets. If they face the Timberwolves or the Nuggets or any of the top teams in the West, I still think it's the Celtics championship to lose if they continue to to grow and they continue to play the level of basketball that they've been play, been able to play so far. But to answer my own question, I think the number one thing I would want them to add is and I talked about it in my episode with Travis Thomas of Nesson WEI is can they get them just one more winger to come off the bench? Just yeah. one more. That and because I think scoring depth and just depth overall. You can never have too much of it, especially in the playoffs, because we've seen it in the last couple of NBA champions with the Nuggets, with the Warriors two years ago, like and as well as the the Bucks three years ago in twenty twenty one. Depth matters. Yes, it helps to have a a terrific top five or top seven in in, in your lineup, but if you have depth coming off the bench, it makes a world of a difference, and that's something I I would hope that. If the Celtics are able to get them another winger, but not at the risk of trading away any of the important pieces they currently have on this team, because you you, you don't you don't mess with chemistry like this, especially when it's as good as what the Celtics have had this season so far. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You don't want to strip too much off of what they have because what they've had has worked better than anything else in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely, and. I want to shift over to uh, to the Bruins just real quick because the Bruins they they beat the um the, the Colorado Avalanche um just last night on uh, five to two Pasanak another virtuoso performance and he has a, he scores a hat trick um against Colorado in which that Colorado has been 
one of the one of the elite teams in the league this year, even even without a healthy Gabriel Landeskog. Um, but still, Nathan McKinnon was still able to make his presence known last night, um, scoring a goal for for the Avs in a losing effort. But as it pertains to the Boston Bruins, now that Linus Olmark has returned back from injury, he didn't play last night, but he was available to back up in case if Swayman, you know, I faltered. But Swayman has been an all-star this year and has been truly one of the better goaltenders in the league in the last two seasons. So my question to you is this. If you are Don Sweeney, and I threw this out there yesterday, in which that if you're the Bruins, maybe you should try to look into the services of Vladimir Tarasenko from the Ottawa Senators because they look like they are guaranteed going to be sellers. Um, Like Jacob Chaitron may be available for trade, maybe. But if you're the Bruins, what do you possibly look at in terms of something you can maybe add, maybe maybe uh, another another 15-20 goal scorer for your bottom six that's going to help beef up the offensively? Or do you just hold Pat, ride with the young guys that has been a big factor for this team? And I'm talking about um I'm talking about Jacob Laco. I'm talking about yeah. Matthew Patras um and, 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 and so forth. What do you do here if you're Don Sweeney John? Yeah, look, and I know there's been some chatter about do you trade Ulmark now that Swayman has shown he can probably be a starting goalie. I would consider it, but only if I'm getting back an elite level offensive piece, like something and a, fir- and a first trading. round pick. Yeah, I'm not trading because this is still a guy that won the Vesna last year and is a really good goalie. Like people seem to lose sight of that because yeah. I know their season ended in disappointing fashion. Like the guy won the Vesna and he's still one of the better goalies in all of the NHL. So even if I, you're a Swayman believer, if you're the Bruins, I'm only trading Omar if I get an elite level offensive piece back. That that that's it. As far as what could the, I would love to see them make an addition at center because I think look early in the year we thought Matthew Potra could be a guy that could slide in and be a center for most of the year or all of the year and be a good piece, but I think he will be eventually. I just don't feel like he's quite ready to have that full load. On mm-hmm. him. I think Charlie Coyle is at his best when he's your third line center because I think he's that tweener. He's like an average second line center, but he's a great third line center. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he's been that the whole time he's been here. So that's, and I love Pavel Zaka, but I would still love to see if you can get a center of his quality or even better for your top six. Like if your top three centers are, you know, someone you add, Zaka and Coyle, you're pretty good, right? Like right there. And yeah. then you could put Pacha on the wing or you could even put Pacha as a center and then move Zaka to the wing where he played so well for stretches, you know, the last couple of years, I'd be fine with that. So I would just, I would like to see them address center because DeBrusque, I think he's been playing well all year defensively. His offense has improved over the last few weeks. Marshan is Marshan, Pasternak Pasternak. Those guys are going to give you a lot of offense. Trent Frederick's given you good offense this year. So I, I would like to see them add just something at center, so then, may, you know, even if it's like a second type, second line center, and Zaka's your first line center, and then you have, can have Coil solidly on your third line, that would be the ideal thing for me. But I'm only trading Ulmark if I'm getting an elite level offensive piece back. I I absolutely agree, and and I think, and I still maintain this this thought where if you were going to trade away Linus Ulmark, you should have did it right after the NHL awards last summer because his value was never much was never higher sure. than it was then. So 
with, with that, so with that being said, um, like la- last question I'll ask you is, especially now that it's right now, it's just Bruins and Celtics in Boston. Until the the, the Red Sox pitchers and catches report. I mean, right now, obviously, the talk in Boston is going to be, what do the Patriots do with the number three pick? Who who should they draft? Should they draft Marvin Harrison Jr.? Should they draft the quarterback? Any of the quarterbacks that are available, whether if it's J- um, Jaden Daniels or Drake May or Caleb Williams, um, and so forth. So the final question I'll ask you on this pod is, with the number three pick of the 2024 NFL Draft, the New England Patriots select. Yeah, I think it's going to be Jaden Daniels in that spot as of now. But I think, look, I said earlier that the biggest question I have about the Patriots is Gerard Mayo's offensive philosophy. A close second to that, Shukri, and a question that I think could determine the entire first round of the draft. What do the Patriots think of Jaden Daniels? Because you figure mm. in the top two picks, Caleb Williams and Drake May are going to be gone. So if they think Jaden Daniels can be a franchise all-pro level quarterback, then boom, they take him at three, no problem. But if not, then it opens the door for a major trade down potentially. It opens the door for Marvin Harrison Jr. It opens the door for Olu Fashanu or Joe Alt. Like there is a ton of possibility. If they don't like Jaden Daniels, there is a massive amount of possibilities, not just for them, but for the rest of the top 10 and the rest of the draft as a whole. Now, if they like him, boom, they'll just take him at three, I think, and go on their way. But I think Mm -hmm. that to me is the second most important question for the Patriots and the biggest thing that could impact the entire first round there. Because if you are a team and you know the Patriots like Jaden Daniels and you want a quarterback, maybe that also means you trade up to one or two to get ahead of them to get one of the other guys to make sure you get one. And that creates a big trade. Like it's just a lot will hinge on what they think of Jaden Daniels. And I personally think they're going to like him and take him. And very, very last question as a side note. You, you want me watching the NFL draft coming up in, in, in just a few weeks? Because I, I I feel like this is the most exciting and the most anticipated NFL draft probably in the last five years because there's so many quarterback and skill position prospects to keep an eye out for, especially as it pertains to the New England Patriots. Yeah, I, I will have my eye on it. And I think there's nothing that takes the place of their games in the fall. But when you look at the combine, you look at the pro days and all that, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of still valuable information you can get from, you know, then until the draft. So yeah, I'm definitely going to have my eye on it, but nothing for me substitutes or comes over what they did in the fall on the field. Absolutely. John Lyons of WEEI, check him out there. Um, If you're in the, if you're in new England on WEI, if you're outside of the new England region, you listen on the free Odyssey app. And as well, check out his work on for the New England Football Journal. Terrific work that he does there as well. John, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the pod, man. It's been a blast catching up with you, talking with you on a variety of different topics throughout this hour plus episode. I appreciate you. So I thank you so much, man. Hey, I always enjoy taking the time to talk with you. I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime soon. Pleasure to be on, Shukri. Great catching up with you as well. And uh, as we went through... Busy time of the year, busy time of the decade, if you will, for yeah. New England sports. So there was a lot to get to, and I'm glad we were able to. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.